Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today, we're going to have a look at the justice system and how it worked in the East End, particularly during the Victorian period. Hi, today I'm joined by a very interesting person. Hello there. I'm David Charnick. I'm actually a tour guide in the London borough of Tower Hamlets and also in the city of London. I've lived in Tower Hamlets all my life and I teach tour guiding there through the local council. Nice to see you yet again, David. And nice to see you too, Derek, as always. Now, during one of our recent conversations, um, Mm. you alluded to the fact that if someone was sentenced to death, quite often it wasn't carried out. That's correct. And it got me thinking because, like a lot of people, my view of sort of 18th, 19th century judges were that they were like hanging judges who just wanted everybody executed for the minor offence. And after I spoke to you, I thought, hmm, I wonder. So I'm going to question you a little bit more about this today, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. That's fine. So would you like to sort of explain to me that if somebody was, you know, sentenced to death, Mm. how did they avoid execution? Well, there were different ways. I mean, if you were a woman and you were pregnant, then you wouldn't be executed because it would kill the unborn child who hadn't committed any crimes. And so um, what would happen is your sentence would be respited, so sort of delayed until you gave birth. Um, then technically you could be hanged, but normally you wouldn't because it was deemed to be in the child's interest to be brought up by its mother. If you were a male, you could volunteer for the army or the navy on the understanding that you'd probably get killed anyway (laughs) and save (laughs) the uh, administration a bit of uh, time and trouble. But what would normally happen uh, would be that you would be recommended to mercy either by the jury or by your defence counsel. I mean, we're talking the days before the Court of Appeal, which was only there from 1907. So that's relatively recently, if you think about it. Yes, it is. Yes, obviously. And were there any um, things on the statute like crime of passion, for example, or um, were people allowed to make a plea of extenuating circumstances or diminished responsibility? It wasn't covered by law, no, not by statute law. But there was a lot of 
room within the judicial process, you know, the course of the trial, uh, before people were brought to trial who were suspected to have diminished responsibility, not being full possession of their senses, as it were, uh, they would be usually remanded in a prison with an infirmary wing and they would be assessed there by medical people. And so the medical people would come forward during the trial as witnesses and they would testify to the the lack of um, responsibility of the defendant, the accused. But it was just part of the overall case for the defence. So really, things were probably a bit more civilised than we're led to believe when we see some programmes on the television, for example. They were much more civilised, to be honest. I mean, the death penalty was a problem. It was seen by the authorities as a problem. It was supposed to be a deterrent, but with public hangings and stuff, you would get you know, the occasional moment of bravado on the gallows and that sort of thing, people playing up their last moments on earth, as it were. And it became effectively an entertainment. People would go to the hangings and it'd be like a little fair and you would have people, uh, they would be hawking these little sort of broadsides, these printed pamphlets with the condemned man or woman's confession from the gallows, which had obviously been written the day before and printed in advance. Right. But of course, I mean, you explained to me previously, for example, that pickpocketing Mm. was a hanging offence. It was. Yeah. So there were severe punishments for what we would deem today to be fairly minor offences. It was a crime against property. That was the thing that the whole fear that you're not respecting other people's property. It's a, a very old idea, really. Um, But in terms of the death penalty, in the 18th century, you get loads of crimes put on the books as capital offences. I mean, there had been quite a few before, including theft, which is where we get the expression, may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. So you might as well, if you're going to be punished anyway, you might as well go ahead and do uh, a worse thing. Yeah, make it worth your while, I suppose. Well, that's the thing. As one of the arguments against the death penalty was that once somebody had killed somebody, they don't really worry anymore because it doesn't matter how many people you kill, you can only be hanged once. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Have you got any examples you could give me, for example, of um, cases, say, in the East End that were commuted? There is a particularly poignant uh, case, yes, from 1870, uh, the case of little Joseph Lippmann. And it's a good illustration as well of the social conditions of the time, uh, the poverty and the conditions that people were living under. What happened was there was a couple, Joseph and Hannah Lippmann, and neither of them had any work, so they decided to go travelling around to try and find some work. But they had a problem, which was their son, little Joseph. He was 13 years old, but he was very stunted growth. And also he had a wide range of care needs. He was deaf and mute. He had a very delicate constitution. He could eat boiled potatoes and boiled fish and bread and butter, but 
nothing really else, he got upset internally quite easily. If there were a thunderstorm or something, he would have bouts of diarrhoea and so on. So he needed careful looking after. And you couldn't take him on the road with you, basically. Uh, So what happened to this poor child? Ah, well, what happened was his father, Joseph Sr., he had a brother called Elias, who was a fishmonger, but he wasn't usually in work. You know, he was often in need of funds. And he was married to a woman called Mary Ann, and they lived at Boar's Head Yard, which is um, between the bottom of Middlesex Street or Petticoat Lane and Galston Street, so just to the east of Aldgate Station. Near where Tubby Isaacs used to have his jelly deal stall. Exactly where Tubby Isaacs had his jelly deal stall. That's right. That's at the bottom of Galston Street. That's it. Yeah. And it was called that because there used to be an inn there in medieval times, you know, and there was actually a theatre there and a Shakespearean theatre in the 1590s and so on. Anyway, putting that aside, (laughs) uh, there was housing there and the... Uh, Elias and his wife Marianne and their four children lived at number 11. But as was the case in those days, they only had one room, you know, multiple occupation, slum conditions. And they agreed to look after little Joseph. And they had always been sort of very kind to the child in the past, very loving. And also, uh, Joseph and Hannah had scraped together some cash to pay them to look after the boys. So that probably had a a bit of sway as well. Yes. So anyway, they agreed to look after him. But very soon, it seems that they'd taken on much more than they could handle. Uh, Little Joseph, uh, he slept in uh, a sort of box bed, literally a box, and... When the case came to trial, the maid, who was another Hannah, Hannah Sullivan, um, who had actually been living with them until she got fed up of not being paid, and so she left. But she came back as a witness. And she tells of Marianne Lippmann's attitude to the child, and you can hear the despair that Marianne must have been facing when she realised just how much she'd taken on. So at one point, Hannah, the maid, said to Marianne, you know, can I go out and get some cotton to make a bed for the boy? Because he was literally sleeping on wood shavings, uh, which would irritate ordinary skin, and he had a sensitive skin. And Marianne just said, oh, let the bugger die. You know, and it sounds harsh on paper, but when you actually listen to the the witness statements and stuff, you you can see that's a sort of expression of sort of hopelessness, really, with the situation. What am I going to do? I will just you know let him die. I can't be bothered anymore. Frustration. And it all came to a head in uh, July 1870 when a doctor was summoned, Doctor Sequira who lived nearby, he came home on Sunday late afternoon after doing his rounds and he found a message asking him to come to 11 Borshead Yard. So he went round there to the Lippmann's room and there he saw little Joseph because the place was horribly overcrowded. As I say, you've got Elias and Marianne Lippmann, four children and at the time a maid all living in one room. 
So Elias and Mary Ann would have been sharing a bed. Presumably the four children would be in one bed top to toe. Two Seems strange, to though, that, you know, considering they didn't have much of an income, that they managed mm. to support a maid. Well, clearly they didn't, because as I say, she left because she wasn't being paid. Well, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> so they probably took yeah. her on when they had a little bit of cash, but then it ran out, and uh, and so they stopped paying her, and maybe she thought that things would pick up, and then just got fed up of waiting and left them. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's a valid point. You know, have someone living in a one room with their family, we even think of engaging a maid yeah, in the first strange. place. What would the maid do? But the doctor came in and uh, Elias wasn't there. He was away. He was out of the, the home. But Mary Ann was there and the children. And there was little Joseph in this little box with his wood shavings. And he was naked. He just had a blanket over him. And when the doctor peeled it back, uh, without wishing to sound too prurient, he could see parasites running over his skin mm. and his skin was all scabbed and everything you know uh so he made some recommendations about feeding the child and and giving it port wine and why would us, you give it port wine <laughs> well a victorian thing they were quite happy to to ladle alcohol down children to you know excite their blood you know and, and give them a bit more internal warmth you know oh, i suppose it would have done the trick yeah yeah, they they weren't squeamish about uh, well, yeah. well, they weren't squeamish at all. The Victorians, they were up for it, whatever it was. To be honest, but um, yeah, so that's what happened. And then later, that sort of late afternoon, early evening, a policeman called PC Smith, and seemingly he must have been tipped off by Sequira. So he came, had a look round. By that time, Mary Ann was out of the room. There was just the children there. And then he reported back to the police doctor, and the police doctor came round, had a look, examined little Joseph. And this is on the Sunday. The next thing we hear is the following Wednesday, and that's the post-mortem examination of the body. So he died in the meantime. Right. And they opened him up. The stomach had just a couple of teaspoons full of some sort of undigested liquid. So no solid food in there. Nothing in the rest of his insides, his digestive system. Do you think that was because there was no money to feed him or it was a deliberate ploy? I don't think it was either. I think it was just that they were trying to feed him, but he couldn't really eat much. That was the trouble. Right. As I said, he had really specialist care yeah, needs yeah. and that they were in no position to answer them. So yeah, essentially, he'd start, it was neglect. He starved to death. So inevitably, um, Elias and Marianne Lipman were up before the old Bailey on a charge of manslaughter. But as the evidence was being heard, as I say, you can hear from what was said that Marianne Lippmann had said that it wasn't malicious it was just that they well she anyway just didn't know what to do and so as a result um yeah, she just couldn't care for the child and that's why he died of neglect the jury must have picked up on this you know despair that Marianne 
and Lippmann was feeling because they recommended her strongly to Mercy, to the judge. So was it, a, they were both tried, husband and wife? They or was Elias were led both away tried, with but the thing is, there was no evidence brought against Elias, the husband. It was only okay. brought against Mary Ann. And uh, she was found guilty. Elias was found not guilty because no evidence was brought against him. And, well, as far as the record is concerned, you know, there's no record at all in the proceedings of any um, evidence being brought against him. And Hannah was found guilty of causing death by willful neglect. So it's not literally um, murder, but it's on the way to manslaughter. And she was found guilty of, as I say, causing death by neglect, which is basically manslaughter. What sentence was she given? Well, this is it. She just got 18 months. So clearly the judge um, accepted this recommendation to Mercy. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I understand. And um, you know, it went through so Elias, as I say, he was found not guilty. I can't help thinking that. It was clear that this couple, although you know they were guilty, that they were under pressure, and maybe that's why the focus was on prosecuting Marianne, so it could be brought out more clearly, and in that way, a recommendation to mercy could be allowed. So, I mean, this is just me speculating. Yeah, no, but no, no. I can't help feeling enough. that that's what was happening, because you know, the thing was, I see the. These penalties, the harshness of the penalties available, 
they often were a problem for the sentencing judge because you know, they're basically human like the rest of us. And there's a lot of instance where uh, you know the judges and the judicial process as a whole was very dissatisfied with some of the penalties, especially the death penalty. Because in that century, the 19th century, that's when you see uh, crimes coming off the book as capital crimes. There's a lot of judiciary reform and legal reform in the 1830s and 1840s. And then in 1868, so that's two years before the Lippmann's uh, bit of trouble, you get the Offences Against the Person Act of that year, which removed the death penalty from every crime except high treason and murder. So from then on in, those are the only two crimes for which you can be executed. So you don't get executed for anything else. Okay, so things like pickpocketing and that you could sort of do and get... Well, pickpocketing came off the books as a capital crime in 1808. So, yeah, that was already safe. So you were okay with that. Okay. <laughs> you only, you've got to make a note of that. Yeah, you've got a sentence, but, uh, but you wouldn't uh, get the noose, the, you wouldn't right. get the gallows. And what a crime of passion and, you know, diminished responsibility. Was there ever a, an acceptance, say, of diminished responsibility? Well, the defence of diminished responsibility doesn't enter the statute books, the legal framework, until 1957, which is quite late. Yeah, very recent. Mm. But there were cases where uh, this evidence would be taken so when the the defendant, the accused, was arrested, they'd be remanded in custody in a prison in the infirmary wing where they could be seen by doctors and their mental state could be assessed. And although there was no uh, defence of diminished responsibility, the medical evidence would be presented by the defence counsel and... It will be part of their argument so that if the person were convicted, they could then put in a plea for a recommendation to mercy uh, to the Home Secretary, either to get the decision overturned or if a death penalty had been pronounced to get that commuted to something else. But also, of course, people were assessed to see whether they were fit to stand trial in the first place. Oh, right. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, when you say assessed, was that, would that mean everybody? Because obviously some of these people were just out-and-out out rogues and criminals. That's <laughs> yeah. not to say I approve of the death penalty even for a rogue or a criminal. But yeah. Yes. I mean, there's the case of a Bethnal Green fellow called John Parr. And in 1900, when he was just 19 years old... He shot dead his fiancée, Sarah, Sarah Willett, who was also 19 years old, uh, on the steps of Bethnal Green Police Station, which is still there, uh, just along by the Shakespeare pub. Yeah, I know it very well. Yeah. yeah. Although, of course, it's not um, a police station anymore. They moved down the road. Now, John Parr, he, he was a strange boy. He'd been... Well, he went on record during the trial that he'd had fits ever since he was a child. So presumably epileptic fits, but it's not specified. And also it came out that one of the things he would do 
will be to shave his arms and legs and then stand posing in front of the mirror as if he were a statue. Uh, he was extremely uh, vain and uh, narcissistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he, uh, once he killed his fiancée, he shot her. And she she didn't die straight away. It took about two or three minutes, but she was unconscious. But he was held, obviously, by the police. And a local doctor, Dr. Jenkins, was brought in immediately to have a look at him because he was a bit sort of dazed and so on, you know, and he was just saying, I did it, you know. And, um, and Jenkins had never seen anyone who had just committed murder before. So he saw that Pa was dazed and everything, but um, he thought, well, maybe that's usual. So anyway, Pa was remanded in custody to Holloway Prison, and he was kept in the infirmary, and medical opinion was sought, and doctors went in and chatted to him and so on. And they actually revealed that you know, there were complex medical problems there, and it came out in the course of the trial that there was insanity in the family. One of his maternal uncles, one of his mum's brothers, had been in the old Coney Hatch Asylum. And three people on his father's side had been um, recorded as insane. And two of them had done a spell at Coney Hatch as well. Mm. So there was plenty of evidence that he was you know, uh, not responsible. And his actions, to be frank, show that. I mean, he, a week before the killing, as I say, this is 1900, he had been out with these, out drinking with these three women. One of them was his fiancée, Sarah's older sister, Caroline. And uh, there were two other women as well, friends of theirs. And they were in... The Horns Pub at Number One Hackney Road. So I presume that's what's now Brown's Pub, the strip joint, oh, just yes, across yeah, from the yeah, church. Yeah. Anyway, he took this photo out of his fiancée Sarah, and he was kissing it, and he said, um, "She's been seeing other men while I've been away, and I'm going to kill her, and then I'm going to kill myself." And he said, you know, you're not going to hear of a wedding, you're going to hear of a funeral. So it's a curious thing to say when you're out drinking. Yeah, and it's very strange. And they moved off from there and they moved southwards towards Bethnal Green, so presumably coming down um, Shoreditch High Street. And a few days later, his fiancée Sarah, with a friend of hers called Emily, was at, the, was at Victoria Park. And they're having a stroll around, and then John Parr turned up, and he took Sarah aside. And he was having a little conversation with her, and Emily couldn't hear much, but um, it didn't look particularly friendly. And then the next day, Emily and Sarah were at the Foresters Music Hall, which used to be down towards the bottom of Cambridge Heath Road. It's long since been demolished, but it was a, an important music hall. Um, Dan Leno... And Little Titch, who was a, a short performer who yeah. wore those big clown shoes, both, yeah. and Charlie Chaplin had all performed there. Wow. Um, so it was a you know an important place, yeah, yeah. important part Sounds of the musical it. circuit. Yeah. So they were there, and they went to the bar in the interval, 
and John Parr turned up. And she said, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with you anymore because uh, it seems that he was uh, a small-time crook, although no real evidence of that was brought forward at the time of the trial, but it's sort of suggested. Anyway, um, so Sarah and Emily left the musical. Sarah said to Emily, you know, let's get out of here. And they started walking off up Cambridge Heath Road, or Cambridge Road as it was then. Uh, but John Parr followed them, and he followed them all the way up to Bethnal Green Road. And they turned left into Bethnal Green Road, and they were outside the police station when Sarah said to him, you know, just leave me alone, I don't want you, I'm an honest man. And because he was badgering her, she decided to go into the police station and report him. So as she and Emily were walking up the steps, he took out his revolver and shot her down. Right. And it, presumably he didn't try to make an escape or anything, and the police just apprehended him immediately? Yeah, the police grabbed him. Um, but, yeah, he was just sort of stunned, you know. And they sat him down, and he just sort of sat there, and he said, yes, I did it. And there was a suicide note in his pocket. So clearly he was going to kill her and then kill himself. Oh, right, I see, yeah. So obviously they investigated his background, as you said, and found out he'd had relatives in Colney Hatch and other places. That's correct, yeah. What's interesting is that the medical witnesses who examined him reported that he had problems, but none of them said that he was of unsound mind. They all said that he was perfectly responsible for what he did. All right, so... Yeah. Tell me more. But, um, I mean, his behaviour, like I mentioned when he was in the Horns pub uh, and took out the photo, you know, kissed it and everything. And it, it's strange why the, the women stayed with him that afternoon because they carried on uh, walking down with him, drinking, heading down towards Bethnal Green. And you might have thought, they said, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah, strange but, man, um, yeah. As they were walking down um, Shoreditch High Street, he pulled out his revolver. And so, of course, they had, hadn't seen it. They didn't know he was armed. And he just sort of shot it in the air. And that's when he said, you know, you, you're not going to hear of a wedding. You're going to hear of a funeral. Well, he was thought that had raised alarm bells, surely. Yeah. I would have said to Sarah, be careful. Hmm. Ah, well, this is the thing. Because um, Caroline, her sister didn't say anything to her, but the other two women did. They both warned her and said, you know, you want to keep clear of him. But it's curious that her sister didn't. No. You would have thought that was the one person yeah, who would have absolutely, warned her. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and one of, her, um, one of the other girls, a girl called Lily, she actually asked for one of the bullets. So he un took out the chamber and gave her one of the unspent bullets. And, and that was produced... Later, you know, she handed it in to the police. Oh, I see. And that right. was produced as evidence that, you know, he wasn't all there. Yeah. You know, if you're going to kill someone, you don't go about advertising the fact and brandishing the actual murder no. weapon. No, not unless you want to be apprehended beforehand. Yeah. Or unless you've just lost all sense of perspective and... Yeah. Maybe it, it was a sort of narcissistic thing. You know, I mean, they often say about suicides that they can be a, a call for help yeah, yeah yeah and uh so maybe that could have been what it was that he um that he'd lost grip 
on So what reality. fate befell Mr. Parr? Well, this was it. A call for mercy was put in and he didn't get the benefit of it. So he was hanged at Newgate in the execution shed. Oh, right. In so 1900. in that case, it didn't work. No, no. no. That was the thing. I mean, if the medical witnesses had followed through and had said, yes, he was uh, of unsound mind, a case could have been put forward along with the other supplementary evidence from the family and so on. But they resisted that temptation and they said, no, perfectly sound mind. So really it was still um, quite speculative as to whether the plea for mercy worked or whether it didn't. There was sort of no clear guidance given, was there? That's true. There was... Well, it was very sort of ad hoc. I mean, that was why the Court of Appeal eventually came into being. There were just too many cases where the recommendation for mercy was clearly you know, ineffectual. And often the... Well, if, it, if you were talking about the sentence, then that would be down to the judge. But if you were talking about the conviction, that would be down to the Home Secretary. So the case would have to be referred to to him, because it would have been him in those days. And if you think about it, the Court of Appeal has a panel of judges. And these are people who've sat for years. They've seen crimes come and go, trials and everything. They know the ins and outs of the law. They know where... Um, the possibilities are to overturn a sentence or a conviction. The Home Secretary doesn't. It's just someone who's been a member of Parliament yes, for so yeah, many years, yeah. you know. So, uh, you know, how would the Home Secretary know whether or not, you know, to overturn a sentence or a conviction, except on political grounds? Or public opinion. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. So, David, one of the things I've realised in our chat about... Uh, crime and criminology etc mm -hmm. the pleasing thing for me is how the law has developed along with society as society has improved and become more human so the law has developed and become more human is that a fair assumption that's very true yes yeah um the the law has always been more humane, I think, than people give it credit for. But, yeah, it has responded with the changes of society and so on. And increased accessibility to the law has come in. And, yeah. OK. Once again, David, thank you. Another fascinating time spent with you. Thank oh, you. Thanks very much, Derek. It's always a pleasure, as I say. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns